0: Hi everyone, it's Joachim Arkren, your host of the Elite Game Developers podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Zero Barrow is the co-founder and COO of Village Studio, a new kind of games company that is building cross-game avatars that act as portable avatars dressed in NFT wearables with unique attributes that can be utilized across multiple games. Cyril has been in the games industry for a long time and has had leadership roles at companies like Digital Chocolate, Rovio and EA. And most recently he was leading the EA Helsinki Studio, Track 22. In this episode we talk about Cyril's lessons learned from working in leadership, building studios. And what he sees as the true potential of interoperability of assets between games. All right, we're recording. Hi, Cyril. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me.
0: That's good. That's a pleasure. Uh, I think we started talking a lot during COVID when you were leaving EA and mm-hmm. thinking about the new things. I think there was a lot of topics that we we discussed. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to get into some of those today. So, um, but first off, can you share your origin story and how you made your way into gaming?
1: I'm a little bit special in the sense that at university, I learned how to make aircraft. So, I'm an aircraft engineer. And for 10 years after that, I worked in factories, not making aircraft, but mechanical items. And I worked in factory, I spent my time in factory being either a quality manager or improvement manager. And life took me to Finland. So I met somebody, I followed somebody, and I ended up in Finland. And I was thinking, what do I do here? What kind of job can I have? I was looking for factories, I was looking for, you know, a chimney with, with, with smoke, and I couldn't find any. And I thought, well, even if I find one, how do I speak? I mean, how do I communicate? How do I read a process? And then I saw an ad, I thought, that's oh, not for me. You know, I moved on. And then in the evening, I came back to him and say, this is an ad in the game industry. And it sounds fun. And it's like, if you want a fun job, you better apply for a fun job. So just apply. So I push myself, you know, beyond beyond reason, just apply. They got no chance to get that job, but just apply. And I ended up the next day in front of a few people from Digital Chocolate. One of them was uh, Ilka Pananen, is the CEO of Supercell now. And I remember maybe my memory has distorted a bit the story but my, my memory my, I remember Ilka asking me two questions. The first one he asked me are you a coder? I said no I'm not a coder I'm a mechanical engineer I make aircraft and an item. All right. So are you a gamer? I was like no I'm not really I'm not, not not really a gamer. And he asked me hold on hold on you don't play any game? And and you, you could see he was a bit frustrated you know like you don't play any game. I was like well you know I play snake on my phone and I play doom on my PC but I am not a gamer. And here in the interview, you could see everybody smiling. Everybody's uh, coming back to me and say, this is exactly the type of players we're after. We're looking after those players who said they are not gamers, but are playing. You know, they can- Eventually, they become the Candy Crush soccer mom. You know, They're not gamers, but they play and Candy Crush waiting for their son or their daughter playing football on Sunday. So that's my, that's my story coming into the game industry from, I'm not a coder, I'm not a gamer, but hey, Come along and bring your craft. I'm sure I know you can handle people, you can handle process, you can handle product. So you can add value to the industry. Welcome to the game industry. That was 17 years ago. (laughs) That's a good story.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Like the I was just thinking or I was going and, and listening to one previous episode that I did earlier this year where there was a discussion that you definitely need to be a gamer to come into the industry and do well. But that perspective, I think the, the kind of contrarian perspective of mm. um, not like you can play games and not be like a quote-unquote gamer is totally fine. Like, mm. yeah. So. Know,
1: just to bounce on that, I remember sometimes, for example, at Rovio, we were doing a lot of RPG and I hate RPG games. I don't like, you know, leveling up my character and going into some kind of semi-automated fight. I just don't like it. And sometimes I was playing those games because I had to, I had to play. And I, I just say, this is job, this is work. I, I need to play this game because I need to understand the potential or the progress or whatever. And then there are other games which are matchery, merge games, you know, more casual games that I totally enjoy. And I will work, I will play on my way to work at work and after work and in the evening before going to bed. I enjoy some sort of game, but I would not claim that I enjoy every game that I've been doing, et cetera. So yeah, you don't need necessarily to totally
0: enjoy what you're playing to be in the game industry. Yeah, it's totally true. Before we go to all those lessons learned from working at these amazing companies, um, can you introduce your your own startup that you're working on right now, which you and Will founded uh, earlier? Was it this last winter?
1: Yeah, we 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 said that we officially started in May, so a few months back, five months ago. Uh, I got two co-founders. I got Will Luton, who's a product uh, co-founder, and I've got we got Tak Fong, who's a CTO, technical co-founder. And I'm, you'll hear through the discussion we're having today that are more based on operation deliveries. Um, School Village Studio. We are doing um, we're doing crypto gaming, but we have one north star, and is to make interoperability game item interoperability work and we don't mean in a technical sense it's not the technical ability to make interoperability work is not really important to us but we're looking at it as a motivation standpoint what is the player motivation to see the game item functioning working adding value from game to game and why would developer care Why would they see interoperability as a positive thing for them? So really about player motivation and developer motivation. I need to add, because it's extremely important for us, that the type of company that we're building, the culture that we are focusing on, the reason I left EA or I left my career in in corporate to do a startup is we want to create a journey for us and for people that are joining us in that journey, uh, very enjoyable. And we want to spend time with people that we want to spend time with. So that the, the cultural aspect of this venture is extremely important for us
0: co-founders. Yeah, that's amazing. Like I I need to mention here that Will Luton, your co-founder, he was on the podcast actually a few years ago. And I'll add his uh, podcast link to the show notes so people can, can find it there as well and listen to it. I think you two together are, are definitely the the secret sauce to build a, a, a lasting company. Like, so just just a caveat thinking about, like, the whole topic of interoperability is, I think, something that I think it's a great start for something amazing as a company. Um, it's a good North Star, and I hope you find it. For <laughs> sure.
1: Um,
0: so I wanted to cover... The lessons learned from working at these big studios. Like uh, you've been at a bunch of places, and let's just start with Digital Chocolate, uh, the company that uh, where Ilka Panen and so many of the, the Supercell founders were at before they founded Supercell. Uh, there must be a lot of things that you still think about today, uh, lessons learned.
1: Absolutely. So, first of all, is kind of pitching yourself. Understanding that I ended up in Finland, I'm French, and I ended up in Finland, you know, as I explained, following somebody. Uh, and then I, I was able to work not only with Ilka Pananen, but also with Trip Hawkin. Trip Hawkin is the founder and first C- CEO of EA Electronic Arts. So those are the people that for seven years I was talking to. And of course, I can only think that those people had a huge influence in, in how successful they are. They were, and they sorry, they are, but the way they were thinking, the way we were you know, engaging with each other, etc. So uh, I did a reset when I came to Finland, moving from mechanical to IT. And those people were around me and kind of really pushed me. So I was extremely lucky to work with this type of person, very inspiring person. Um, but I would say Ditchok, D- I think the, the, the main learning, and it's very actual because now we're talking about Web3. We went through two huge corners in the industry while I was seven years at Ditchok. The first one was the operation of iPhone. The second one was the free to the premium to free-to-play turn. In both cases, it was there was a decision when when, when the signal of those turns came, there was a, 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 um, a managed decision in the company to say we are ignoring those ones, keeping an eye on them, but we are not going to go for smartphone, we're going to stay on J2ME. Back then we were on Facebook, so we were going to carry on focusing on Facebook. We're not going to go to a smartphone. And we are not going to free to play. We're staying on premium. member of course, if we see signal, we'll move. But eventually those two stops, those two uh, uh, points where we decided to ignore the trend got us from um, a leading publisher on J2ME phone top five. Digital chocolate was top five in, in J2ME into losing six months into the turn of iPhone and into losing another six months in the turn of free to play. That's a year lost in competition. And of course, then you know Rovio came with, with smartphone, Angry Birds, and, and uh, Supercell came with free to play and tablet and these kind of things. So a year is a huge cycle in, in the industry. So lesson learn, for me personally is I see Web3. and very, very um, uh, uh, in an organic way, I'm thinking, ah, it's, it's just a fluke, you know, it's gonna pass you know whatever. But then somebody tapped my shoulder, that's Will Lutton and saying, Well, forget about everything you know about crypto and NFTs and everything. What about the tool? What about the technology? Don't you think we could use it as a game maker to add value? And then I'm thinking myself, well, I'm curious by nature and I have nobody to tell me to ignore it. So let me be who I am. Let me be curious. Let me be inspired by somebody like Will. So this is very personal now. It's like I I got no boss to tell me to ignore this phenomenon and maybe it will go away. But in doubt, it's so exciting to be working in Web3 today.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a really good lesson to to learn uh, from those those moments. You also had the opportunity to go through like the trip Hawkins University as well, mm-hmm. which yeah. I, I, I remember talking about this earlier this year with uh, Mika Amengoski. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any any great anecdotes, good stories from from like interactions with Trip?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, as an employee, uh, you will see him as a very charismatic person flying to Helsinki, speaking for two hours nonstop, not taking any question, and just you know drop the mic after two hours, and and then you will just drink and you just follow blindly. You know, it's a bit fine boy. You just follow blindly. As an individual connection, when you are alone in this office in san mateo in san francisco and he's basically reapplying the same system he's not having a discussion with you he's just telling you his view and he's trying to implement his view in you so when you come back to helsinki you will implement his view that's really the way he was using us manipulating us in a not in a negative way but you know in a very controlled way i remember myself being totally under the spell of trip Knowing exactly what I will tell to my team, which is exactly what you just told me five minutes ago, and how I will drive my team. So this type of person, there's the old school, you know, kind of solo visionary, very lonely leaders. Uh, today, the management style is very different. I mean, not all the case, but majority of the case, at least in village, it is. But that's the anecdote is about being under a spell and knowing exactly what you had to do because the, the communication was so direct and so. Um, um, uh, inspiring that there was nothing else you could say or do when you were back home. It was it's it force of nature for
0: sure. Yeah it's and then you moved on to, to have a short stint at Gameloft and then uh, a longer one at Rovio and and ended up uh, taking a leadership position as well in, in the Helsinki uh, EA uh, mm-hmm. team. Like what makes it hard to make great games like hit like that? kind of supercell success in these kind of big companies like you were talking about missing missing iPhone, missing free to play. Uh, but like should big companies learn something from these startups?
1: So first of all, like what, what it makes hard, I think there's a ghost in every one of those companies. There's a ghost at Rovio that was 2009 Angry Birds. How do we reproduce that? How do we how are we somebody again? And that puts a lot of pressure you know, you, you try to avoid it, you try to focus on, on, on creativity, you try, but eventually there's this eagerness just to, you know, be great again, you know, <laughs> I don't want to mm, have a red yeah. cap, red cap yes. on, my, on my head, but this is this is really it. At EA, it was a bit of a different story because EA Mobile has never been as big as EA Console, and uh, so it was more about how can we show them, console people in EA that mobile is the future and we can do as much money as them, and We have more bigger community and bigger retention and this kind kind of thing. So eventually it's a little bit the same of a ghost of success. You know, it's like, how do you chase that ghost? And eventually that ghost is just a a limiting factor. Um, But above all these, those companies are set in a kind of, I'm going to make an exaggeration here, but they say meeting to meeting and very defined way of working. You know, we put stage-gauge process, we put process in place because in big company, it makes sense to have some kind of process to have an overview, umbrella view on what's happening. So you, we have to put meetings where we review opportunities, we review project, we look at KPIs, we greenlit stages. Okay, you can go to production phase or we decide to kill or the team decide to kill. But all this eventually takes a lot of headspace and the headspace you need to do creativity. The moment where you're looking at the window at the rain falling, the moment you're walking in the forest on a Sunday but you're still, still thinking about your game, how do you recreate that more and more and more during the day? So you have a creative space because it's a creative industry. It's not a factory line that I used to that I used to make when I was in the mechanical industry. We need those moments of silence, of doubt, of exploration. We need those moments where nobody is disturbing it. And I think we are mis- the, the big companies are just filling the gaps and just losing this mental space. I've got an anecdote where I created this mental space for myself and then I freaked out. I was like I should be in front of my email, I should be in front of Slack. I mean, what if they have a problem and they need me? No, 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 Cyril, no, You are at the right place now. You just have nothing to do. You're just thinking about problematic and brainstorming solution on your own. But, you know, the desire to be typing emails or being on Slack is huge.
0: Like the whole independent team, small team model is so much also about cl- creating, like uh, a barrier that nobody can come and say what they should be doing, mm-hmm. giving those the opportunity for a creative spark to happen. I think that this was what Ilka was doing at Digital Chocolate a lot. That they like that's that's at least the perception I have that like he was protecting the European studios from the influence of the U.S.
1: (laughs) management. And he went one step further, I think at Supercell, I never worked at Supercell, but at least from what the literature and and everything that Ilka is saying, he went one step further where each team, each cell had the freedom of creativity and had the space to eventually make mistakes, because this is what it is about, his ability to make mistakes and just move forward, not, not being afraid of.
0: And it, it's chances. not easy. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not easy when you have investors, you have all sorts of stakeholders wanting results to actually like believe in that model and upkeep that model.
1: Yes. There's something, maybe one more, one more thing on the topic is that eventually when you allow too many people to come and interact with your creativity, everybody will have an opinion and that opinion basically takes the bar down. So product becomes average. Product becomes not risky. People, game, everything becomes average. And eventually, you know, it's like, why would I play that game? It's like, it's no different from the neighbor. It has no creativity, you know, beyond the obvious. Nothing is weird. And we all know that most of the best game got something weird in them. But everything is ironed out because somebody came in the room and said, what if we remove this? And somebody else came and what if... We tone down that and eventually it's just become average. And that's that's why also you protect the creativity of your team and you you put them in cells to avoid to keep those spikes and those weirdness
0: in the game. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk more about Village Studio and, and the model that we already mentioned here. The discovering the interoperability in gaming. What is your thesis on interoperability and what have you so far discovered about? The interoperability model in games, between games?
1: So, our thesis is um, there is a world where game item ownership and ability for players to take that ownership from game to game uh, makes sense and could create another turn in the industry. We all know, I mean, we all understand that we have to try hard and maybe we will not succeed. But the same way that free to play came and disrupted, the same way that a bigger a screen on iPhone, on, on iPhone actually, uh, came and disrupt. we have, we could think that ability for a player to save their data somewhere public and own this data, and this data will have a utility somewhere else, could be a game changer for, for the game industry. So that's that's a huge hypothesis we have. The other huge hypothesis is there is a world where a developer welcome Joachim coming to my game, but hey Joachim, you bought your item in, in another game. But I benefit from it. There is is a word. So I can go into, of course, more details about those those hypotheses and those benefits that developers will have or, or players will have. But this is the thesis. The thesis is there is a world where interoperability, the motivation around interoperability, are aligned between players and developers. And that's the next turn of the industry.
0: One company that I've been paying attention to quite a bit is Ready Player Me that has been working on this interoperability through the avatars that they have. What are your thoughts on those kind of services and the ways that you see the players embracing this? Is it something that comes from a player need? Where, where do you see it coming from that we want this to exist?
1: so i'll um, i haven't explained the product so the the product we are working on on village and i'm explaining because it has a relationship with ready player me we believe that we can carry our power so the power ups that we have a persistent power we can take it from game to game this power will be represented with variable that we put on an avatar and the wearable will have statistics and these statistics will represent the level of power you can carry from game to game so of course when you think about avatar going from game to game you think about ready player me which is a company based in Estonia extremely successful that is doing an amazing job with an amazing team that have two headcounts also in Finland so that's why we're quite proud about, about their their success ready player me is offering uh, SDK that uh, allow any developer to create an avatar and those avatar will be able to travel from game to game so ready player me we love them we just look at them as a technical solution to interoperability how does a 3D avatar works in unreal? In Unity, in rendering tool A, in um, animation tool B, you know, in all those type of different tools and pipeline, uh, animation pipeline, etc. How does that work? How does how you do display a 3D avatar in your game? And they did, a, you know, they are doing an amazing job. What they are missing is why would the player care beyond the 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 appearance, the identity that you can carry to, from game to game. Identity is a good start, but for player, we need to tickle their motivation a bit more. In free to play, we've been working with persona, We've been working with motivation types for many years now. So we understand the motivation. You know whether you are a collector, whether you are a co-op, or you are you are a destroyer, this type of motivation. So what we think we are different, and where we think, first of all, we're not relying on. It's not a technological play. We're not focusing as much on the technology that uh, Ready Player Me is, but we're really looking at answering your question. Your game is like why would player care to own and why would they care to carry? Again, it's, 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 it's a long answer to, to a simple question because eventually the answer I'll give are hypotheses and those hypotheses have to be tested with real game, real player, and making sure that player acts the way we think they're going to act. So at the moment, we are very early in a, on a one single prototype where there is an avatar joining with wearables. Those wearables have powers associated to them. And we want to see how this, when the avatar enter the game experience, how does it modify the gameplay? Is it meaningful? Meaningful to the point that the player says, can I keep this t-shirt? Can I keep those shoes? Because the power associated to those wearables, I want to reuse them tomorrow. And then looking at another game and thinking, oh, you are telling me that this t-shirt will also have a power in that game if I carry there uh, with the avatar? Let me try that. I'm going to take one more minute here because there's an example that is very close to my heart. So I work at Rovio for five years and part of my job was to handle the long-tail portfolio. Long-tail portfolio at Rovio back then, it might have changed, was 12 games, including Angry Birds Classic from 2009. Angry Birds Classic from 2009 was making more than 100,000 organic downloads every day. Like not no ads, nothing, just out of word of mouth. And back then, of course, Angry Birds 2 was and is still making the majority of the revenue for Rovio. So we would have loved as a company that those 100 plus thousand da- daily downloads will go to Angry Birds 2 because that will make a lot more financial sense for Rovio. So one of my jobs back then was to see how much could, could I cross promote from Angry Birds Classic to Angry Birds 2. And that was a big focus I had. And I was, of course, I was putting pop-ups. Sometimes I was saying, hey, if you do this and that, you incentivize. And if you go to Angry Birds 2, you come back, you get something. But today, if I had the same culture and I had the same understanding about blockchain, what I think I would do, or at least what I think I would suggest to at, at, at Rovio, is not have blockchain because it's a bit scary and it's Web3 and it's you know, legally, do we want to associate the brand with, with with NFTs? But I say, let's have a server somewhere in Espoo, somewhere in Finland, that for the players of Angry Birds Classic, at some point, they'll... They'll earn a hat and they play with the hat. It's a, it's a power up. So the chuck will go a bit faster. Bomb will explode a bit, a bit bigger, et cetera. And after a while, say, hey, you know, your hat is your hat. You can, you can re- reuse it. And, and you, do you know you can reuse it in Angry Birds 2? And by the way, yesterday they started the Viking season. And guess what? You just got the Viking hat yesterday. So if you go to the Viking season in Angry Birds 2 with your Viking hat, you know you'll have the edge to get to the leaderboard. I'm not saying those players will go to Angry Birds 2. But I'm saying that one, they know Angry Birds 2 exists. Two, they own an item that three, have a utility in game two. I'm pretty sure my cross-promotion would be more than 3%. Back then, it was 3% of new users in Angry Birds 2 were coming from my portfolio, for the long-term portfolio. So I'm pretty sure 3% will be 5 or maybe 10%, who knows? So when you say, you know, do 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 player needs it? You know, that, that depends how you look at the question because in the story I just gave you, do they need it? Kind of, yeah. Player sees the value of bringing their Viking hat to the Viking event. So, you know, it's it uh, yeah, depends on how you look at the story.
0: Yeah. It, it- it needs a, a different lens totally. If I if I would pick a game developer who's working on, on titles and thinking about building the first game, what would motivate a sole game developer to build interoperability?
1: What are the two harder things to get when you're a game developer? One is user, the other one is money. So what if interoperability, game item interoperability will bring to those developers new users, and money so hear me out this is again hypothesis we need to test it and we are on the mission to test it this is what we're working you know day and night so i explained the, the the new users i just explained the example of Rovio. so you're a new game developer and you say you get your those items those game items those wearable that have stats and i'm saying that those wearables they have a utility in my game come and use them because eventually people churn from game and are looking for content for new content and if it's easier for them to move into a game where their owned item has a utility in. So, okay. Okay. I've got this amazing cap. I know if I go from Angry Birds to another game, this new game, it has utility. It's bringing me new users in the theoretical level. So I've got new users. Now, revenue. How do, again, Joachim, you, you got your heart somewhere else. You got your heart in, in, a, in, in another game, not my game. How do you bring me money? So the idea we have is two companies are doing it well at the moment, Netflix, Spotify. When you pay your subscription, monthly subscription, the money doesn't go to Netflix or Spotify. It goes to a treasury. And the treasury is distributed to all the content provider. Every time you listen to music or you look at the movie, basically every time you provide value, you're pulling from, from the treasury some revenue. So in the game industry, what does it mean? Every time you go to the marketplace and you buy an item, the money goes in a treasury. It doesn't go to village, it doesn't go to the developer, it goes to a treasury. It's a big shift from web to and free to play. Free to play, give me the money, 30% to Apple, X percent to, to Google, the rest is for me. No, no, no. Everything is a treasury. We this is a this is a shift of the industry. So know, yeah, Not everybody's ready for it. And then, Joachim, you spend like a 10 ETH, just to make it simple, 10 ETH. And then the first week, you just play this one game. So I'll take 10% of those 10 ETH, one ETH, and I'll give it to the developer of that game. But next week, Joachim, you play two games, game A again and game B. But well, there's nine ETH still remaining associated to you as a user, as a payer. So I take 10%, I'll take nine, and then I split it between the developer of game A and developer of game B. And then it's a diminishing return. The beauty of it is it is... the developer's motivation to make you a repeat spender you reckon? because if you don't spend again then i'll get less and less and less money from you even though i retain you more and more and more the only way i can monetize you as a player in my game is to make you a repeat spender and here we're going back to the fundamental of free-to-play us as game designer not one shoot and forget or Xenomic or whatever you want to call it. it's like how do i create sustainable economy where i provide enough entertainment for players to enjoy the interoperability but to carry on
0: spending and that's we think is a good the good loop what was happening with mobile free to play for the last 10 years is that the people who were making the most money were the, the ad networks mm-hmm. uh, who were basically taking the, the money from developers to send people around and they could always monetize the same user again and again i, I hear the opportunity here to actually displace part of the, the middlemen there and actually like keep the developers money by actually like doing these kind of promotions inside those games yeah there's a lot of opportunities there mm. yeah it's a big
1: turn for the industry but somebody has to push it somebody has to inspire
0: let's go back and talk a bit more about your work so you you have this title of coo what do you think makes a great CEO, COO in a startup? How should that role be defined in a games company?
1: It's a good question. So, uh, COO will be chief uh, operating officer, officer, so on the operation. Just for for the audience here who haven't heard the, the term before. So, yeah, what is operation? It's it's a good question, and yeah, you know, for many years I even wondered myself. You know, what, what's my value? How do I bring? bring bring value in in some kind of uh, organization so when you're a graphic designer you just produce graphic when you're a game designer you produce experience you know there's so so much and you you write line of code but certainly operation what's how do you measure uh, your value so i'm a bit older uh, so I you know, kind of came with at peace with with all this and i've i've got few learnings first of all is there is a systematic approach to a lot of things including creativity by the way yeah i think there is a, cre- a systematic approach to creativity not your know, strict but yeah you know, there are methods in order to to discover and and explore uh, potential and entertainment uh, in operation, it's the same. There are tools that we can use to prioritize. There are tools that we can use to kind of gauge potential to uh, predict an opportunity. You know, co- you know, there's a lot of tools that we have. So all this, you can learn from it in you know in pod- podcasts like yours, uh, in articles, in books, etc. Knowing the theory is good, and and I think it makes a the base of a good um, CEO. Now there are two things that without I think CEO are very average. The first one is to understand the difference between theory and practice. Yeah, you know, going into a battle, you know, it's like launching a game. Is you know, battling, battling. You know, so many variables. Sometimes you you know the theory, but the answer is not applying the theory. It's just you know, grind on some hunch or some you know, just ad hoc activities in order to either move forward or learn something or fail and learn. You know, so making the difference between theory and practice. Understanding that being a CEO in a company is not just applying things you read in books. That's that's very important. But I'm always a bit careful about people who day in day out just you know mention a book and say in that book they said that so this is why I'm acting. I'm always a bit careful. The other one is the most important for me is if a CEO doesn't understand the product, it's it's the value is very limited. You become a project manager, yeah. You know, and a CEO is somebody who's able to work with the CEO on product, on strategy, somebody who's got an opinion. Okay, I explained how I came to the game industry not being a game, uh, a gamer myself, but today, of course, I understand everything about game from retention, monetization, virality, about product cycle, cost, you know I me mean? User acquisition, everything, every topic about game making, I understand it one way or another. And whenever CEO is discussing... A strategic move based on product. I'm able to have a proper discussion and, and, and be a proper balance to his, uh, to their to their um, to their opinion. And I think this is a real value of the CEO. The real value of the CEO is not to project manage and to do a Scrum or to do a sprint or, or to count money. The real value is to be a sparring partner to the CEO and really create a, a melting melting positively melting team. Symbiosis thing.
0: When you have a CEO and a COO, what are sort of the complementary skill sets that are optimal for the CEO and the COO? Today, a CEO could have a product background,
1: could have an operation background, could have a technical background even. So I don't think there is a, there is a recipe there. But I would say uh, the the profile of a CEO is fairly standard. So while the CEO itself is a variable, according to the background, the CEO is usually fairly constant. It's never constant, but fairly constant. So I would say, as I explained just before, the ability of the COO to understand product, to have business mind, for me is the goal to good to great CEO. Now, of course, it depends if those CEO are in front of a technical background CEO or of a game design background CEO so for me the the best the best at work is a CEO that understands product that has uh, a vision on product and that comes back to working with Zilka to work with Trip is because those people they were driving us with their vision and inspiration and we were following them you know with a huge smile on our face and I think that works very well I'm not saying that as a CTO is not a great, cannot become a great CEO or a CEO. And, and, and um, but I'm just saying that what I've experienced in the past is kind of game game background, CEO, vision, strategy, and a COO being the right arm and, and really understanding the product and being able to take a strategy and implementing it. Uh, I think that's a good, good, good uh, uh, pair.
0: Mm. Yeah, that sounds sounds good.
1: Just one more thing, talk a little bit about diversity here. I had the chance to be the CEO to, um, woman CEO. And that was another level of complementarity because we just think differently. We have affinities. I think the, the woman CEO had a very user-centric affinities and, and, and focus. While as a CEO, I was a bit more rough. I was a bit more scrummy scrum. You know, I was a bit more, let's do task and deliver. I was younger back then, but I realized now with the age and, and in hindsight that that, was, that needed to be cherished because it was a, it was a good complementary. The, the, the diversity aspect of this, of this couple was, was pretty nice.
0: Yeah, that's a really good one to add. As the last question before we go to my regular final questions, what topic do you often think about but don't talk about?
1: So I don't have the perfect answer because I do talk about it. But culture because eventually you say that culture is what is happening or is what is you know the outcome is not really what we talk about so that's why I'm bringing that and I mentioned what at Village why the culture that we're building and the journey we're building and the people that we're spending with is extremely important so whose responsibility is it about culture is it the CEO's responsibility is it the product is it the CEO is it the CEO? it's everybody's responsibility but in a way I think the CEO has got a little bit more weight on making or breaking the culture because you just make this one more, a bit too strict process or a bit less trusty culture. You know, there are decisions that things we can put in place that could kind of make or break the culture. So I, I feel the weight today as a co-founder and focusing on operation I feel the weight of I get a bit more responsibility because I my action I've got a bit more influence on the culture that we are trying to build Uh, but eventually it's everybody's culture uh, culture is everybody's uh, matter so I would say culture this uh, this would be my answer yeah it is important one it's the final question Cyril what's your favorite book and why I'm very intimidated because you're asking me this question because I know you read so much every every week on your newsletter. You mention new books you've read, and I'm a poor reader. I think I've got some sense of either laziness or dyslexia, but you know I've never been a great great reader. But there's there's this book that I read long time ago. I was when I was in the mechanical mechanical industry and it marked me in a way that I still remember about it and it was a boring book it was about numbers and stats it's called Understanding Variation and till today and I think for a long time again still I'm going to use it as as a north star about one what do number tell you, you know, signals versus truths, because we do so much qualitative, quantitative data gathering in the game industry. We look at numbers all the time. And me understanding that everything is a matter of variation and distribution, and eventually even a salesperson can use real numbers but lie about the narrative behind the the numbers all this has been so inspiring for me about especially since the game industry moved into a kind of data-driven industry that i understand what numbers are for what they are but i also understand how they can be manipulated and understand what is a strong signal what is a weak signal and eventually when do i need to make a decision myself and not expect numbers to make a decision for myself so this book till today and i'm expecting it still for a long time is going to affect the way I'm thinking about business.
0: Sounds like a really good good one to pick up. Do you have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today?
1: It's not necessarily a story, but it's maybe um, a bit of a philosophy in, in, in my life. So if, if I look, I've done this exercise many times, but if I look back into why I am here today in this position, in this country with those with this family, for example, so personal and professional situation, can identify some very specific point where I was either able to say no, or I was able to say yes, but it was scary. So my philosophy here is, first of all, make space for the yeses. So you have I always try to say no to a lot of things, give the context to the people I'm saying no to, explaining why it's not a priority, also exposing what I'm going to focus on. So saying no is kind of difficult. So my ability to say no in the past has been uh, you know, uh, critical to why why I'm here today. But the other one is, there are a few yeses which are obvious and then there are the yeses you don't want to say yes to because they are the scary take you out of your comfort zone more uncertainty requires more energy you know more, more work you know one for me was I need, I need to say yes to go to Sri Lanka to implement quality standard in, on a shrimp farm. Why would I do that when I'm an aircraft engineer? but I thought that if I say yes that will open so many doors to me or there would be such an amazing experience for me you know when I was 20 but I was afraid to go to Sri Lanka I don't didn't even know where it was on the map I'm lying a little bit here you know what I mean but anyway my ability to say yes to things that were not obvious so I think this is is me in a nutshell today is making space by saying no many times and when there are few yes left look at the one that you know you should say yes to but they're not obvious they're just they're hidden somewhere and those are the ones that makes your critical path in your life you can pinpoint at Mm -hmm. them still today without those yeses i will be somewhere else maybe happier by the way but i'll definitely be somewhere else yeah
0: that's amazing hey final question cyril for the audience how, how can they reach out to you and maybe learn more about billy's studio
1: first of all i welcome anybody to contact me i'm a huge i'm a huge believer of network and Finland, we love to to exchange and, and share our learning so please please contact me at the moment i'm spending a lot of time on the village uh, on the Plaken discord just because i love to hear what users have to say and and try to share as much as possible about what we are what we are about and what we're building so to find the Plaken discord you know just go to play and then you'll get a link there but yeah look, we'd love to see you there
0: nice Hey, Cyril, this was so good. So many things, uh, good good learnings here. So thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Joachim. Take care, man. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to my guests for joining the show. If you have time, please go and sign up to our newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about, I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.